Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So you first, friend. You are in Atlanta relaxing with your family. What's astonishing you this I week? I am. I'm astonished by a conversation I had with the guy who came to repair our air conditioner before we left for Atlanta. It's very interesting. He's very nice and kind, uh, young, white gentleman. And um, he did a great job repairing our air conditioning and um, was grateful for his wearing mask and gloves and social distancing. That was very uh, appreciated, very much appreciated. And, um, in the end, he was getting information from me and asked my email address. And so I gave him my email address um, and uh, pastor is in my uh, email address. And so he says, oh, you're a pastor. Where do you preach? And I told him to write a church in Charlotte. And he started telling me about his church. And uh, then he wanted to talk about current events, especially what's on the news concerning racism. And, and he just really put it out there. He's like, I don't understand why when a black cop shoots a black person, it's nothing. When a black cop shoots a white person, it's nothing. When a white cop shoots a white person, it's nothing. When a Hispanic cop shoots someone, it's nothing. But when a white cop shoots a black cop, it's racism. I don't get it. I don't understand. I think something is wrong with that analysis. And I was, I was both shocked and um, pleased, I guess, that he would just initiate that, com that kind of conversation because it wasn't, um, it wasn't in any way hostile. It wasn't in any way. And so I am very grateful uh, for the conversation and his risking my response because he didn't know me. He's never been to our house before. And so um, I wasn't sure what to say, but as he was talking, it occurred to me his problem and the, the problem for many white people in our country right now is that there is simply a lack of knowledge of history. And I'm just yeah. astonished by the inability of people, mainly white people, to make connections. And it's primarily because they don't get history. They're, they're not seeing our times through the lens of history. So when, um, I can't remember her first name, but Cooper in uh, Central Park threatens to call yeah. the police on a, black, on, a, on a black man and clearly, he is not any threat to her, but she calls with um, a distress in her voice that clearly <laughs> takes you back to Emmett Till in Mississippi when a woman said, a white woman said, he um, made a comment to her, bye baby. And some men came to his house, got him, and uh, 
tortured him and killed him, right? We don't see those connections. And if I were going to give some advice to white people in this season, it's to pause and do some work in history. Try to understand everything that's happening through the lens of history. Because if you don't, you will simply be limited by your own perspective, your own day. You will fall back into, well, I've never owned slaves. I don't hate white people. I mean, I don't hate black people. And so I don't get racism. I, I'm not racist. And so they just got to see it from a larger perspective. And it's, it's, it's a study of history that will enable white people, I believe, to have some, some, some empathy, some, some ability to see things from another point of view, uh, away from their uh, kind of narrow perspective. It'll be, um, uh, um, <laughs> I should say, right history, clear history, good history. It'll be a study of history that will help white people um, uh, analyze, critically listen to, what they hear on Fox and MSNBC and CNN, I, I just am astonished that there's just a lack of understanding of history and how these things in our day connect. Because let me be very clear, um, for many of us, we understand history. I mean, at least in this area, yeah. we understand this history because if you don't, your you your survive. your life is at stake if you if you don't get this yeah. and um in in my sermon last sunday i talked about the talk that black and brown parents have with their children and part of the talk that you have with your child is about it's it's not the sex talk it's the talk about how you navigate racism in the in the society and part of that talk includes history because you've got to connect those things and so that that's what's astonishing me uh these days well i mean i just think that that brings up several things to me because one thing that i think i mean you're really gracious and everyone gets to know their own and everybody decides for themselves obviously what you know when a question feels like a gift and when a question feels like a demand um but i mean i just wonder like did he ask you like can i ask you a question about something or i mean did, did you have an opportunity to um not have that conversation with him or did he just sort of say like no now that i got you let me ask you a question about um, <laughs> well um the question came out of a context as, of us talking about church, right? We, we first established this common base of, I see you as a fellow believer. And so it, it was out of that that I feel like he felt comfortable to ask the question. He didn't ask permission, but he did ask in a way that, um, from my perspective, was was non-threatening and gracious well, I mean, and, I just, and, and, and risk-taking. Well, I mean, I just think, I mean, I think the word you used is really interesting. Like he felt comfortable. Mm. And, and that is what I think is so problematic for white people is that we just walk through the world doing whatever feels comfortable to us. Mm. So if it feels comfortable to be like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm like, I'm standing in your house as an, you know, professional and I'm gonna ask you 
what's up with all this racism stuff? Like, why does this matter and not that matter? Like, you know, I mean, it feels comfortable to him, but did he stop and think at all as to whether or not it feel, felt comfortable to you or did he just feel entitled to that? And one of the whole reasons that white people don't know history um, and don't want to know history is because when you actually start learning the history, what you're going to feel is deeply uncomfortable, mm. like sick to your stomach, want to throw up, like, I mean, just like, and so I think that's just the huge, I mean, it's just interesting to know that there's a man who has a question and he never felt like maybe I should, I don't know, Google it, <laughs> or maybe I should find you know, a person within the African-American community who's actually doing this as part of their work, as part of their labor and like sign up and support them or whatever to just feel because he says like, well, this person is a Christian. I feel super comfortable, honestly, kind of demanding that they um, have a conversation about what is a really um, traumatic topic at a moment's notice in the, I mean, I don't know, like that's just, I mean, and I don't think, I mean, I suppose, you know, I, I hear a lot of white people talking about like, well, it's just so hard right now. Like we're supposed to ask questions, but we're not supposed to ask questions. We're supposed to speak up, but we're supposed to be quiet. We're supposed, I'm like, yeah, you're supposed to be thoughtful about what assumptions you're making about um, the world and the people around you. And I mean, to me, there's a big difference for you know, going up to someone, I mean, a complete stranger and just, I mean, to, to say like, I, there's something I'm curious about, or I, I, you know, it's a big imposition, but can I ask you a question as opposed to just casually like introducing the conversation? Like, did you catch the end of that Panthers game last week? Like that? I don't know. Like, basically, can you justify the pain and trauma of your entire community for me? And like, I mean, I don't want to hit rush hour traffic on the way home. Like, I don't know. <laughs> That's just frustrating to me. Like, I just think so many white people walk around all the time expecting, like, if I'm willing to think about racism, then any black person in my path should be willing at any moment to stop what they're doing and educate me. And that's just like a problem. Yeah, I get that. And I, I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. Um, there, there, were and are a lot of assumptions made. Part of my experience is that, um, I, I mean, I just don't experience white people wanting to talk about racism very much. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I experienced the question as a bit of a gift um, in that um, I got to tell the truth. And um, I think even more than the question, I was concerned about his response to my answer. I was like, this is that for me, it, it wasn't asking the question. It was, okay, so what, what is your response going to be to this? And are you going to argue with it? me? Well, he, he actually did not enter. And I assumed that once I, got close to making the point I was going to make that there would be an interruption with a yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah. And he listened to everything I had to say. And then he asked another question and I talked some more and he listened to everything. 
And I could tell on his face that he was like, I'd never thought about that before. Yeah. Um, and so um, I, I walked away from the encounter with a sense of, gosh, when is that's just not the, the right word, but a sense of, I spoke the truth to someone who needed to hear it. Wasn't sure it was entirely embraced, but it wasn't rejected either. So I, I, I walked away thinking some seeds were just planted there and, and he's, he's going to kick around what I said. I just, I just yeah. felt that. So, but I, but I, also but, but I get your point. I get your point. Well, I also just think like, it's interesting to just peel back that moment and look at what it suggests about what, assumptions he's been functioning under his whole life like you I, I mean I know gave him you know a thoughtful intelligent and you know historically accurate answer but I mean it wasn't like you alone have this special secret way of understanding and I mean you know like a pretty you know basic level interest understanding of like hello history like maybe and also his question was premised in an untruth because when Keith Lamont Scott was shot in Charlotte he was shot by a black cop and the city mm -hmm. did respond I mean so like That's hey right. you're just wrong on the facts and mm -hmm. and operating as if they don't matter like framing the question in such a way that you get to dismiss the trauma of everyone on the street. And then B, just the idea that the expression on his face said, huh, I never thought about that before. What a level underneath that says to me is, so the assumption you've been functioning with all the time is that all of these people who are saying this is a problem, they had no reasonable logical um, perspective all along. Like, well, because if you're if you are watching Fox News, yeah, what you're getting is, oh, the reason these black people are saying what they're saying is because they are just lefty lefters, right? They are they're just bought and paid for by the Democratic Party, and so they're just saying this because blah, they blah, are, blah, yeah. yeah, they are they are. Th this is what people on the political left say right and 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 that is the assumption that many are 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 walking around with and until you enter into a conversation with someone yeah that is your mindset and right. again you know as an african american in order for me to navigate this society i must be in relationship with white people as a white person uh, you don't have to right and so um it, it you you need to engage people on some level and so again i just think we needed to have that conversation because everything everything that's an exaggeration but i'm sure most the vast majority of the things that he's listening to in terms of media consumption say the opposite of what I said. No, I'm sure they do because it goes back to the fundamental premise of being comfortable. Like you are, somebody tells you a fairy tale that basically says, oh, you know, every single one of these police shootings were justified. There's no problem here. There's nothing to fix. And all of these crowds of people that you see on the streets with like, 
their passion and trauma. They are all stupid. They have no valid viewpoint and you mm -hmm. can dismiss them because everything is fine the way that it is. And yes. I'm just saying like, you have to be desperate to be comfortable all the time to just go, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I mean, and just, you have to have, and I mean, we all have, I'm finally reading stamps in the beginning instead of reading about it, but reading it. But like, you have to have really deeply, um, deeply unconscious, subconscious um, understandings of the inferiority of black people to be able to just wholeheartedly dismiss that 99.9% .9 of black leaders and the lived experiences of black people and go like, no, I'm a white person. I understand it better. And the only two black people who do understand are Candace Owens and that one random ex-police officer <laughs> who agree with me, right? Like there's no way that you can be comfortable with that view in the world unless your, your unconscious subconscious viewpoint is white people always have it right and black people um, can't be trusted. Otherwise, you'd be like, huh, maybe I should listen to some of the thousands of leaders in their field, educate, you know, professors, pastors, thought, you know, um, you know, think tank leaders within the African American community who have been saying, you know, for literally centuries, here's what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I just think, I mean, this past week, I wrote a piece and um, I mean, just on Facebook, whatever, and I um, have been getting a lot of interest in it. But one of the things that it just occurs to me in this moment is like, for white people in this moment who are finally and a lot because of the pandemic and because there's nothing to distract us away from the news cycle, there's nothing else to watch on TV, there's no sports, you know, it's basically mm. like, do I want to engage with um the the pandemic and that reality or you know racial trauma unjust you know, unrest white supremacy you know which which of these two options do i want to download uh today it's like a hard hard choice but um you know thinking for a lot of white people if, if you can imagine what it would be like a, as a citizen of germany to wake up one day and discover that the holocaust had happened like, and you just hadn't known it before. Like you knew a dude named Hitler was whatever the, the fear or the president, but like, you just, you didn't know that he had done this thing. And then you discover that like, oh my gosh, I, when I went to nursery school, I learned all these songs that were really from that era. And, and this really happened. And all the people who are in statues, I mean, you know, I learned that they were famous for one thing, but what they also were was a part of this regime. And oh, by the way, they murdered 6 million people and did all these crazy things. Like yeah. if you just woke up one morning as a German citizen and discovered that part of your history and also realized like kind of all along, like you had heard like that maybe some rumors that like something wasn't right, but people are like, oh no, those people are crazy. Don't listen to them. And then one morning you woke up and discovered like, oh my gosh, that really is true. I mean, how hard would that be? But for white Americans, it's like waking up one morning and realizing it's not just one Holocaust. It's just been one Holocaust after another for the entire history of this nation. Mm. And, and like, you know, because to be clear, it's not taught in our history. I mean, like when you go to elementary school, like you don't learn this in elementary school. You really... Mm don't you don't learn about the 13th amendment you learn about the triangle trade but 
you know, they just have the word slaves printed in a book. They don't talk about really what that meant. And then you learn that Martin Luther King had lunch at a lunch counter. It's all over now. Like you don't learn about redlining. You don't, anyway. So I do, I mean, I understand, believe me, how hard it is to all of a sudden realize that you have had this understanding of your community and your history and your nation that you've been kind of proud of and comfortable with your whole life. And then all of a sudden there's just this tsunami of information that is horrific. Like it's profoundly disoriented and you just want to like reject it and run in the opposite direction. But as Christians, we should understand that because, you know, as part of the gospel, there's this, there's this teaching that Mm -hmm. we are all sinners and in turning to Christ, one of the things we recognize is that we need to confess sin and that should not be hard for us. But we have such an idolatry of country that it yeah. is excruciatingly, 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 what's the word I'm trying to say? Excruciatingly. Excruciatingly, that's the word I'm trying to say. Painful for people. Well, and I just think like we've been taught that, but we've been taught that A, that sin is individual, that the real serious sins are the sins that other people do, that Mm -hmm. the sins God really cares about are, I mean, in a lot of churches are the sins of of like what you would call moral righteousness. So like God really cares about abortion and gay sex, but everything else is just kind of like, as Louis Giglio said, like, I mean, it's not white privilege, it's white blessing. Don't even get me started. Like, I can't, I like, I can't even with that man. Like your job is to speak out loud about God and you decide that you're going to sit down and have an off the top of your head conversation about a real conversation about race. And in the context of that, you say that we shouldn't call it white privilege. We should call it white blessing. And you say that white people need to understand that slavery was also a blessing for white people. I mean, like using the word blessing, which in theological terms means something given by God for the goodness of the people who receive it. Like it is horrific blasphemy. And then, and then he's like, oh, sorry, that wasn't in my heart. I mean, I just am so over it this yeah. week. I'm over yeah. it. And, and I do, I mean, like you're gracious and I like, obviously I love that about you and people have been super gracious with me my whole life. And I should be more gracious because I know that part of it is my ego talking, like wanting to make everyone think that I'm so different than, you know, this kind of white behavior that I'm describing. So like, I understand that it's a coping mechanism, but I mean, it's just so hard to continually watch. I mean, it's not hard, like receiving the effects of this violence, but it's just so, um, it's just so hard to watch people who look like you do I mean you just want I don't know it's just really here's what is astonishing me it's kind of a long story but I will try to make it short um so there is a movement in Charlotte that has come up a really a ministry in response to um, the protests um, about George Floyd's death and Breonna Taylor's death. Um, 
a, a group of people, and this is very organic and grassroots, um, but I think is connected to if, if somebody's local Charlotte Uprising, which is an advocacy group, activism group that um, was born out of the period um, after Keith Lamont Scott's um, killing in 2016, um, murder in 2016. And it's a um, local group um, led by um, Black activists who are seeking justice and um, the end of police brutality and um, freedom and liberation for Black Charlotteans. And so one of the things that this group is doing, which is just really beautiful to me, is they have something called jail support. And so they set up a little pop-up tent out in front of the jail and they are there when people get released from jail after they've been arrested for protesting. Um, and what does being there look like? It means like if you get um, arrested and it takes you 11, 12, 13 hours to be processed, then when you come out like your cell phone's dead, you haven't had anything to eat, like maybe you were um, tased or shot with a rubber bullet or um, sprayed with pepper spray and like you um, whatever, like you need a Band-Aid, you need lotion, you need, um, you need to charge your phone, you need to be able to make a phone call, you need to figure out how to get yourself home, you need a granola bar because you're about to faint from hunger, whatever. So this is just a group of people completely volunteer-led who just are there under this tent with like Gatorade and Band-Aids and cell phone chargers and just helping people when they walk out of the jail, which could be at like 2 a.m., you're just released and you have nothing. And hmm. um, so that's what they're there to do. And they also have some lawyers who will help people navigate the system of going up in front of a magistrate just to um, try to get representation because you have to have a lawyer provided for you when you go to court, but not if you're going before a magistrate, like just in the negotiating the bail process. Um, so that's what they do. And they, it came up in response to the um, protests and the, the crackdown of the police against the protests. But honestly, anytime anyone is released from jail since they've been here the past, whatever, 10, 14, 20 days, they just help them, um, whatever um, whatever they got arrested for, when they are released by the city, according to the city's processing, this is a group of citizens who say, you know, we're, we're glad you're safe. What can we do? How can we get you home safely? What do you need right now? So it's totally, um, it's really beautiful. <laughs> um, oh. And they are standing, you know, in the courtyard on public property. They're not in the road. They're not blocking any egress. They're just helping someone who has just been um, going through the jail system, which is scary. Um, and they're there 24 hours a day, um, volunteer run. Well, yeah, um, let's see, not yesterday. On, yeah, yesterday, on Thursday, um, the sheriff's office came outside and said, you can't be here anymore. You have four hours, you have to leave. And they said, like, we don't understand why we, this is public property. We are citizens. We're not blocking the sidewalk. We're not blocking the street. We're not blocking any exits. Like we're just helping people who need help so they can get home safely after you release them from jail. Like we're not doing anything wrong. And, um, and they just said, you have four hours to leave. And so when the four hours were done, the sheriff's officers surrounded them. I'm grateful they were not in riot care. I'm grateful they did not um, shoot them with pepper spray or tear gas or mm rubber bullets at them but there was um there were several live stream recordings you can watch them 
on QC nerve. I mean, it was, it was brutal. Mm. And they, you know, and all these activists were, um, saying like, why are you arresting us? What have we done wrong? W you know, what are we being charged with? Like, you know, and they just, they, they wouldn't answer. Um, so, so then after that happened, obviously, I mean, everyone, and I mean, anyone saw, but obviously all the friends of the people who were kind of, I mean, it was, it, it was not gentle. <laughs> um, uh -huh. You know, everyone just converges down there and people are angry and they don't understand why. And they basically set up on the other side of the street and somehow that's fine. And, um, it's going to be forever. I think the numbers are unclear whether it was 30 people or 46 people, um, how, who, when in the world they're going to get out. Oh. And so the leaders of this, um, movement reached out to clergy who have organized about responding and being present in the protests and said, Hey, um, we would like a clergy presence down here. It would just really help to, um, you know, de-escalate things, to keep us safe, to, you know, be um, present for people who might, you know, need some kind of spiritual report, will um, will some clergy come down and be there? So um, a, a friend of mine and I, we went down there and, and it's the only time I wear a robe or stole. Mm. <laughs> and, and like, I just want to be clear, like, I literally did nothing. Like I did not organize this. I was not in charge. I was not leading this. I did nothing impressive at all. Like they literally were like, wear your funny clothes and stand there. I mean, in a very respectful way, but I was doing nothing. I was just watching everything happen um, and praying. And, um, and then, so there was this moment where it did get actually really um, scary because a young woman who, I mean, I'm no expert, but looked like she might be suffering from some sort of mental illness and also looked as if she might be altered on some kind of substance. Oh. Um, this woman happened to be white, which is um, important to the story. She decided to cross the street so that she was right next to the site where they had been pulled away before. And she sat down in the bus lane and crossed her legs and said, I'm not moving. And so wow. the main organizer who is um, a young um, black woman, and I don't know her last name, her name is Ash. And um, she walked over to her and like very calmly and kindly said, hey, I need you to move because the sheriff has told us that if you, if, if we're in the streets, they're going to come out here again and they're going to arrest us all again. Oh. And a lot of us got really hurt and we don't want that to happen again. You know, if you're here to support us, please, you know, cross the street and come sit where everyone else is sitting. And she refused. And it really quickly started to escalate. And it got really, like, really ugly intense because people were yeah. drinking. And a lot of the people who were gathered there that night were white. And, I mean, here's what is true. Like, white people often interact in protests in really different ways. Like, sometimes intentionally seek to antagonize the police, partly because... I think, and I mean, I'm not the only one to think of this, because they never really experience police brutality, no matter what they do. And you can Google mm. any number of police videos to get my point that like, you know, a, a black child at a pool party will get thrown to the ground and the cop's knee put on her back, but a white man can like, whatever, like spit in a cop's face and nothing yeah. will happen, right? So when white people escalate situations, um, on purpose and antagonize the police, it's not usually white heads that get broken or white bodies that get attacked. Okay. And so, I mean, it, and so then the leaders of this movement who are black, who are saying, we are asking you to please 
move like and she wouldn't and then there were other white people who came were like we don't care we want the cops to arrest us and i mean it was just got super super tense and then another wow. young black leader in that movement came and was able to like just really masterfully like move her to the side and talk with her and get whatever um but after it happened people who were there were really mad that she had done that and really like escalated the situation and potentially put everyone there at risk, especially um, black and brown bodies at risk. And so there was this one guy who was there with the movement and he um, was just a big, I mean, a young man, but just like a big, powerful, tall man. And this is relevant. Mm. And so he gets up and he's like, everybody, you can shut that F up. I've got something to say. And so everybody stops. <laughs> everybody starts talking. And then he just starts saying things that are really true. Like just saying like, that was totally out of line. And if you're here because you want to have some kind of, you know, activist moment, you want to get yourself arrested and you don't care about this movement, then you need to leave. And if we are here to offer jail support, and if that's not why you're here, you need to leave. And if you are willing to do something that gets other people's bodies, you know, beaten up and then you need to leave. And, and, you know, and he was saying that all very true and he was, you know, using profanity and he was yelling. And at the end he said, like, if you're willing to do things that cause the cops to come out here and beat us all up again, he, and he said, I will beat you up my MFing self if you're going to, you know, behave like that. So here's the amazing part. This woman, Ash, who's the leader of this movement, um, who is young and is, like physically just smaller than he is, um, just walked right up to him. And she, and everyone is listening because he's made everybody quiet. And she just looked at him and said, you need to stop. This movement is not about what you're doing right now. You are exhibiting a lot of toxic masculinity. You're yelling at people, you're demeaning people, you're threatening them, and you're threatening physical violence against their bodies. That's everything that we're against here. And mm. if you can't stop this kind of talk and behavior, then I need you to leave. She didn't yell. She wasn't mean. She just clearly articulated the values of the community and said, this is not welcome here. Um, and he said, okay, I'm sorry, and sat down. Wow. And I thought, I mean, I was so astonished because a i mean when he stood up there everything he said was true and he was trying to support the culture of the movement and the goals of the movement and he was trying to protect people mm -hmm. um and she a this uh, exhibited amazing leadership by saying even though you're doing something that i want this group to do like articulating norms you're doing in a way that is destructive to the community and is against our culture so she called that out instead of looking the other way which i think as leaders we often do right like uh -huh. if somebody behaves in a bad way but it's on our agenda we just kind of like well people be people right but then the other thing is like as a 44 year old woman who's been working in the church what working in some kinds of leadership positions I mean, for a lot of my life. So never in my life would I have looked at that man acting in that way and gone, oh, that's toxic masculinity. Like I, I mean, like I know what toxic masculinity is, 
But like when I'm in a mode, I'm just like, oh, that's just what people do. Never, ever, ever mm, in mm. my life would I have the audacity to name that in a moment to the person that was exhibiting it, right? Like my coping mechanism leadership strategy has always been like, I don't want to embarrass you. I'm like, let me mm. pull you aside and let me say like, I really understand where you're coming from and I really appreciate your passion and what you're trying to do is to keep everyone safe. And I really appreciate like your dedication to what we're doing here and that you're fighting to protect everything that matters so much. And I just want to um, ask you um, if it's possible, if you could think about maybe see you are actually, I mean, like I, I wouldn't do it. Right. Like I mm. just, I mean, it just never even occurs to me that that's possible, much less that it is necessary to be an effective leader. Um, and then, I mean, I will absolutely applaud that man that he just said, okay, I'm sorry. And sat down. Yeah. And when I left four hours later, he was still there. And I just was astonished by just the brilliance of her leadership, mm -hmm. the brilliance of her leadership of the, and the Kairos of that moment, right? To say like, if this is a group of people um, who have this goal to um, stop violence in our streets, stop state-sanctioned violence against really vulnerable people, and that they want to fight violence, not by, not with violence, right? And that they are clearly establishing the norms of their, their, their community, which says, you know, just because you are physically in a big body, you don't just get to yell and threaten and call. I, like, it was just unbelievable to me how clear and brilliant that was how, you know, this is what we should all aspire to in the church, right? To say, anyone is welcome here and here's what we're about here. And if you're not what we're about here, then this isn't the place for you, right? So we're not saying you're not welcome. We're just not saying, you were saying, you don't share our values. Now, if you, if you want to share them, you're so welcome, but you mm. can't come in here and like corrupt the integrity of what our institution is trying to do. I mean, and and honestly, I think for so long, I mean, just as the church has been complicit with white supremacy, right? So like we call it out as much as we can, but then there comes a point where we're just like, well, but this person is benign or this person means well, or that's not what's in that person's heart. And like, there's just a certain level, you know, we just can't really make that person feel bad because then they'll leave. And what will we do without their money? No, like just as the church, I mean, like we also have just are so complicit with the way that Satan has um, just distorted and weaponized gender and gender roles. And, and we just, you know, even women who, you know, call, um, are, are called, like, I, I would even say, especially women who are in leadership roles in church communities, don't call out toxic masculinity when it is manifested by good people who support our goals and support our agenda because we know that our leadership is conditional on not calling our allies on their um, 
brokenness. And I mean, you see it again and again, like when a woman in a leadership role actually names, um, you know, harm that's happening among the community that called her, among the men who agreed to come under her leadership, she gets fired. Like that's just what happened to Amy Butler Mm. um, in New York City. Anyway, I just, the thing that I was astonished by was, I mean, I just am so, I'm just sitting with what she demonstrated to me about what leadership looks like, about what it looks like just to have faith that um, your community, um, that people are there for the right reasons and that people who signed on, I mean, because it says, like, if you sign on for jail of support, I mean, they have a whole thing where it says, like, you know, if you can't take, um, you know, rebuke or correction from the leaders of our movement, don't come. If you're unwilling to be around unhoused individual who will ask you for things, don't come. Like if you, I mean, it's just super, I mean, it's just super interesting. So they had really clearly said, this is what we're about. And so then when someone started transgressing those norms, the leader just went and calmly said, hey, I need to remind you, this isn't what we're about here. And then what do you, what do you know? Someone who showed up trying to do the right thing when given the opportunity by really great prophetic leadership was like, oh, you're right. Let me, you know, let me repent of this behavior and go ahead and step into this new thing. And it just makes me so excited to see Mm. a, a community of young people who are saying there's just a different way that we can be people than to keep following, falling back into these same toxic expressions of our humanity. So I'm making an assumption that when she said toxic masculinity, that he cared about that. And so it brought a sense of conviction to his heart. And instead of fighting it, he repented. And um, that's really beautiful and powerful. And I can see why in the moment you would have just been astonished by that because you and I, and and you mentioned this, we, we were brought up in a leadership culture that put people's feelings above the truth and the values the community holds. And so, yeah, that is really, it reminds me of that place in the New Testament where Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and there the son of man will be handed over and uh, I'm going to be crucified. And Peter says, no, that must never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking um, divine thoughts. You're thinking human thoughts. I'm thinking in that moment to have Jesus call you out like that just must have been, I, 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 I bet the, 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 the other 11 were like, Ooh, did, did you hear that? He actually said that. Yeah. But, but I mean, and I but also it was for think Peter's good. I mean, it, it, it was for Peter's good. And what happened? Like, I think my leadership style would have been to be like, well, Peter, I know this is hard to hear. Let me tell you, I'll put this off for two weeks, right? Let's just, and then we'll keep talking about it. And then, you know, because you just feel like, oh, I got to keep people at the table. Instead of actually trusting the spirit of God that has called your community together and saying like, no, this is who we are. And it's not, I mean, what was most remarkable about her, her leadership in that moment is I mean, it was so pure and like she wasn't humiliating him. She wasn't yeah, yeah. demeaning him. Like she wasn't calling him names. She wasn't saying like, you're a, you know, POS, you know, abuse. She just said, 
hey, that behavior isn't welcome in this community. And that gave him a way to say like, oh, then I'll stop with this behavior. But I'm still welcome in this community because she hadn't identified his behavior in that moment with who he was as a person. And the reality is he showed up to be part of jail support because he was resisting mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. force in our city where threats of violence is used to produce desired behavior. Like that's what we want the police to stop doing. So she already knew that he wasn't signing on to those values. Mm, so I mean, good. it just it just really made me think. Like I, um, I don't know. Like I'm just gonna be thinking about that for a long, long, long time because um, that. I've never seen a leadership moment like that ever. Well, and what it also says to me about her is that in a very real and deep sense, she's walking in freedom. Absolutely. You know, because I might've pulled back in that moment. Um, I'm thinking about times in the church where I didn't want to appear as the angry black man, right? And so it's like, okay, well, we'll talk about this later. Um, and so what I hear in that is that she, this is a woman who is really free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just had a really clear understanding of why she was there, what the values of her um, group were and was willing to articulate them and willing to sort of accept whatever the consequence of that was. Mm. If he had run and walked away, that was okay. But I, I think also, like, I don't think that we trust our people enough. Like, we just assume like, oh, well, if I tell you the truth about this, you'll leave. I mean, but when Jesus told Peter the truth, he didn't leave. That's right. That's he just right. That's had huge. That's eyes huge. open to the idea that something that felt so right about saying this, saying this felt so right in the moment, but my Lord is telling me it was wrong. My leader is telling me it was wrong. And that's exactly, I mean, that man, like, I wasn't mad at him when he said any of that. Like, he was trying to protect people. He was mm-hmm. speaking up from his heart. And, like, I didn't think he was really ever going to beat anybody up. He just, you know, he, he was just modeling what we've all been taught, which is uh, some kind of violence is helpful and redemptive. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, so... Um, well, we were saying before we got started that you're on vacation and um, this recording blitzed out a couple times. So maybe this week we just wouldn't have time for anything but astonishment. Um, so I, I think we're going to wrap it up now and um, and catch everybody again next week, right? Yeah. So um, if you have not listened to Yolando's sermons, um, right now his messages are all on YouTube on the Derida Church channel. Um, and you should search for them and you should listen to them. They are all good. Um, but last Sunday's was um, really, I don't even know what word to put around it, but was a really generous thing that you shared last Sunday. So everyone should listen and watch and find it. And you should check out Derrida Church. Um, you can Google Derrida Church, Charlotte, North Carolina, and they will pop you over to their website. Um, or you can listen on the Podbean website, um, search for Derrida Presbyterian Church. 
And if you want to find out more about The Grove, you can go to our website, thegrovecharlotte.org, or you can listen to messages at The Grove, sermons at The Grove, on, um, you can find us on iTunes, The Grove Church Podcast. So thank you all so much for listening.